0: Thank you all very much. Um, well done, brother. Um, Bella also, Bella's doing an awesome job running the slides today. Good job, sister. Um, so we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 today. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 15 and you're like, oh, that's a long chapter and it's almost 1130. Don't worry. Um, I talk fast. And so um, so we would turn there. And uh, in uh, in our Amherst slash Hudson or Huron group, um, we have a slash Lorraine. We keep adding cities, slash Wakeman. Um, so in this group, we just started a study of 1 Corinthians. Um, we're only about two chapters in, uh, so this is going to be a big jump to chapter 15. But it, this is the chapter on the resurrection. And one of the cool things that's happening in this chapter, um, if you know, if you guys remember from what we've talked about 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth where he showed up a few years before he wrote the letter, and he pretty much just basically proclaimed the gospel. Not a lot of frills, we don't have any evidence of any miracles other than the miracle of regeneration when someone believes in the gospel. God just moved, people got saved, Paul moved on and at this time he's writing from Ephesus to Corinth and he's heard that there's some things going down in Corinth that aren't so good. There are sin problems, there's division problems, uh, and then as we're going to see there's some theological problems. And so Paul has written this letter to clear up things that are in error and call them back into order as a church. Interesting thing about Corinth, it was a party city, it was a very wealthy city. These are not people that would have normally been seeing themselves as people who needed much. And yet the gospel broke through in Corinth. And now Paul is writing this letter to remind them about the gospel itself. Uh, So if you would, look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to jump right into it because there's a lot of content here we want to cover in a short amount of time. Um, Father, would you just anoint me as I speak today, that I would speak only in accordance with your will. God, may you illuminate scripture to us, that we would understand it with the help of your Holy Spirit, that we would be convicted in ways in which we are uh, falling short of obedience to you. Uh, and then also that we would be empowered by your Holy Spirit to obey. Uh, Beyond all that, may your saints be edified today. May we leave here encouraged, remembering the hope that we have. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand by this gospel you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Pretty simply, he says, just hold on to the gospel. Whatever else you do, hold on to the gospel. Um, he's clarified that listen, if you think you're just holding on for a little while and you let go, you you've wasted all that time. He's making it very clear, hold on to the gospel. hold fast to the gospel. Verse three, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And if we look at what's happening in, uh, in Acts when Paul does show up, pretty much all he does is preach the gospel. It's of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. If you remember how Paul came to Christ, he was going to go and persecute Christians. Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus, dramatically, miraculously reveals himself to Paul. Saul at the time, and he completely turns around and believes and becomes an agent for the gospel. But what Paul is emphasizing here is, hey, brothers in Corinth, when I was with you, I made sure that the most important thing that I was communicating is this gospel, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead. And then what... What gets really interesting here is then he goes on to emphasize that there were actually other people who saw it, that he's saying, I'm not just asking that you believe me, you can come and talk to some of these people. So what's very clear here, the gospel is taking priority. And so what I wanna do is drill down just a little bit and talk about very clearly what is the gospel. Because what we're finding is in progressive Christianity, uh, I would actually call it regressive Christianity, or in various forms of liberal theology, We've gotten real loose at what what we call the gospel. And people will say things like, well, the gospel is the news that Jesus loves you. And I'm like, that's that's only part of it, man. Or someone else will say, well, the gospel is about how, you know, if you just love your neighbor, things are going to get better, and that's cool. That's part of it, man. But it's not actually what the focus of the gospel is. Paul very clearly leans in, and he gives this three-point explanation of the gospel. That is, that Jesus Christ died for our sins... That he was buried, and then he rose again on the third day. Anybody tell me, why does he mention very specifically that Jesus was buried? Why does that matter? Like, why not just say he died for our sins, and then he rose? Why, why does he mention that he was buried? Yeah, you don't bury living people. And if you do, they're not going to stay living very long. Um, very clear message here that, like, yeah, this is a confirmation, and generally we talk about this three-point explanation of the gospel here. Part of what we're doing is saying, like, he really did die. Uh, those of you who have been in underground seminary when we, we just, uh, just finished the unit on uh, evidence for the resurrection, and one of the things we go into is all the evidence that Jesus really did die. Uh, They stabbed him in the side. Blood and water came out. Um, You can't just pass out on a cross and stay passed out. You have to be awake to push yourself up to breathe. So even somebody who would have passed out on a cross would have died very soon thereafter hanging on the cross. All the evidence is that Jesus really did die. And then he was buried. And then he rose again on the third day. Why then also, so this is kind of, this is the good news of what happened. This is, praise the Lord. Why then does Paul mention that he appeared to Cephas and then to the other apostles, then to 500 and then to himself? Why does he mention all those people? Yeah, man. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth who is not that close to Jerusalem. And he's giving them this good news. Now, in this letter, he's reminding them of the good news. And he's following up saying, like, guys, I saw it with my own eyes. I saw the resurrected Jesus. Not to mention, Cephas and all these others saw it. 500 at a time saw the resurrected Jesus. And he even says, hey, some of them have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for death. He's like, but most are still alive. You can go and talk to them. He's not asking for any kind of a blind faith here. He's saying we have the evidence. Feel free to go and talk to them. Um, Why does Paul find it so important to bring up this? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you remind us again about the time frame, the year this was written? I'm going to have to remind myself really quick by cheating and using the ESV study notes. Um, Hold on. We're looking at somewhere around 49 to like maybe 48 yeah yeah 15 years 16 probably max and yeah 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 days. not saying that I'm gonna do that just to no, be clear yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah 15 years is not that long yeah 15 years is that's less time than my wife and I have been married. Um, like that's that's pretty pretty easy to go and get that checked. Um, this is another wonderful thing. Not we're not going to go into a whole thing on apologetics today, but it is really cool. Think about like you have Peter writing and confirming things to Paul in Galatians. Paul goes and meets with Peter and James to say, guys, am I getting this right? And they're like, yes, you did. And Galatians is written super early, and then that's all passed around. You have all kinds of corroboration going on. And one of the things we did, I should have pr- added this in. We talk about kind of this like little math equation where we say eyewitness testimonies, right, that are written down and we use great historical documentation. There's wonderful evidence about the historical documentation in the New Testament, right? We have all that confirmation. And then the third thing is that those were all people willing to be martyred for their belief in the fact that Jesus was the risen king, Um That's pretty profound evidence. Actually, if you want to sign up for Underground Seminary, we go into great detail. It's wonderful. But Paul is writing to these people who he's led to the Lord, and he's saying, I'm telling you, this really happened, and we have evidence, and feel free to check into all that you want to. Now, on the next slide, I've given a very, very quick overview of the gospel, um, uh, just because I think it's important because it is Easter Sunday that we talk very quickly about why Jesus did this. Um, Many of us, we understand that we all sinned. Like, not one of us is without sin. Uh, Scripture talks about that none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We also understand that we are due wrath. In Isaiah 26, as well as some other places, there's language about the fact that God hates sin and is going to punish it. It's, it's a scary thing. The idea is like eternity in hell awaits, not to mention even suffering in this life as a result of sin. God does not play around with sin. He doesn't wink at sin, despite whatever people like, might, might like to do to fluff up and make Christianity a little bit more palatable. The language of scripture is the wages of sin is death. Like you will die. You will go to hell for eternity apart from Christ. That's bad news, right? But the good news and what we call the gospel here is that Christ atoned for our sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Similarly, Romans 5.9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The language is, you deserve God's wrath, But Jesus took on your sin, hung on a tree, and allowed God's wrath to be poured out on him. So all of what you should have experienced suffering in hell, he takes that on the cross to pay your sin debt. What's more, we call this the doctrine of imputation, he imputes his righteousness to your account while he takes on your sin. So you've been given his righteousness, he has taken your sin, he pays for your sin, and in all of that, you have the opportunity to have your salvation in Christ alone. Here's the wonderful thing here. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The language is that it is only in Christ. It is only by him. And it is not by works. As Ephesians 2 says, it is completely by grace. And then if you want to know how to be in, the message of scripture is that you believe and repent. That you acknowledge that you've sinned, you put your trust in Christ. John 3.36 talks about salvation for the believing. Romans 10.9 mentions declaring him as Lord as you believe in his saving work. That means Jesus gets put in charge of your life. And as we're going to see, this whole declaring Jesus your Lord, it's the same word for master or king. That's going to become a problem for tyrants. That's going to become a problem for anyone who wants your worship apart from Christ. Keeping that in mind, hopefully we just, I know that was a breeze through of the gospel. Repent and believe, brothers and sisters. Uh, Cool. Jumping on to verse 9, though. So here, Paul has given this very clear, not only reference to the gospel, but now he's provided corroborating witnesses, and he's like, feel free to go and talk to them. This really happened. And then verse 9, he says, For I am least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle, but because because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preached, and this is what you have believed. Cool. Now, understand. Paul is given this whole thing that like, hey, here's the gospel. I preached it to you. That was the most important thing. Other places he says, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then here we get to verse 12 and he says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, then we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Understand what's happening here? Paul is pointing out that, like, hey, some people in Corinth are saying that Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. And what Paul is pointing out, if if you're saying that the resurrection isn't happening, that there's no hope of a future resurrection, then it means Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And it means this is all a joke. And this is worthless. Um, He's not screwing around. He is intentionally pointing out a false teaching happening in the church. I will point out that there is a variety, a cornucopia of false teachings that we have to choose from right now. And many of them will include a disbelief in the idea that Jesus really did rise from the dead bodily. Uh, You'll hear it's very popular among uh, this Richard Rohr guy. Uh, or Rob Bell, or some of these others that see Jesus' resurrection as kind of like this spiritual thing, that like, oh, you know, he resurrected in the hearts of his people. And they turn it into this kind of this mystical waste of breath because they don't want to believe that a miracle happened. They don't want to believe that Jesus really did come alive. Brothers and sisters, I will tell you, when we talk about the resurrection... The idea is that Jesus' flesh and bones came alive again, that he really did walk, he ate food, he lived, he still today, seated at the right hand of the Father, is alive. Um, Again, wonderful evidence we can give to that in great detail in Underground Seminary if you want more. But here's the whole point, is that Paul is saying you can't get away with some liberalized view that allows you to get away with thinking that something that seems strange maybe just didn't happen. Either we believe that it happened, or your faith is in vain, and there's no in-between. Everybody understand? Everybody with me? Cool. Reading on, then. Cool. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised... Please go and sit down, Micah. Thank you. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost... If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. Um, I will point out that men, especially in this time, especially globally right now, we have brothers and sisters who are facing more persecution now than possibly any time in all of church history. Um, Arguably at the time of Paul's writing, persecution was just kind of getting its teeth. It hadn't really been organized uh, under Rome in the same way that it was about to be under Nero. Um, It was happening, but it wasn't quite on the same scale. And what we are seeing right now in the 21st century is more suffering among Christians than possibly any other time. Uh, During the COVID-19 restrictions, Persecution seems to have increased even more. We are in a rough time as far as that goes. And Paul writes to these brothers and sisters in Corinth, as I would argue he would write now and say, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, people should feel sorry for us more than for anyone. If you are going to put your hope in some mere mystical, weird thing that supposedly happened as opposed to the actual resurrection, then you're wasting your time. Cool. Verse 20 says though, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, that is Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, that is Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, and he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. I want to address two things happening in this little section. First, uh, he's very clearly saying, the gospel is true, guys. Um, there's um, good news. All of this false teaching that you've been hearing is false teaching, because Jesus really did raise from the dead, and again, he's already provided some evidence and corroboration. So he's making a big deal out of this is, this is good news, and it's true. But then he gives this quick outlay on like how how the gospel or rather how the resurrection plays out and he refers to Christ as the first fruits Um, he mentions about this each in turn and he begins by saying Christ being the first fruits um, and then Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection is kind of this idea well actually we're, we're next to a vineyard the idea of first fruits is like those first that first crop that pops up and that we know that there's more coming Right? Christ being the pr- first fruits is this like, prototype's probably not the right word. He is the front runner. He is the first one. He is the example of what is to come. And so when we look to Christ's resurrection and all that happened in him, it is what we look to for our own selves that we will be resurrected in the same way because he is the first fruits and we are to come. So the language then is that he's going to return. Now, he has risen from the dead. He's going to return. We are going to be raised from the dead. And then he is going to turn the keys of the kingdom over to the Father and say, I'm done. Right? Verse 25 says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him. It is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. Paul is just making sure everybody understands this does not mean some kind of subjugation of the Father under the Son. And he does a little theological clarification. He says, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. If you'll recognize both in verse 24 and in verse 25, There is this language that through the resurrection, Christ is destroying all of the enemies of God. And ultimately, the final destruction will be death. Arguably, he has already beaten death. And yet, the ripple effect of the resurrection is still having its way throughout the world. But a day is coming when he will absolutely eliminate even the existence of death. And on that day, the kingdom of God, which is already now in existence, will come to its consummation and he will say, here, dad, are the keys to the kingdom that you have given me because everything has been put under my feet. So brothers and sisters, you can understand, he even even says he's going to destroy all rule and authority. The idea is anything that sets itself up against God, any other authority is going to be destroyed, including death itself. And you can imagine how, in the first century, in a time when for you to believe, or for you to be able to believe what you wanted to be and be left alone, you could do whatever you wanted to as long as once a year you offered a pinch of incense to Caesar and you said that Caesar was Lord. And if you could do that, you could say anything you wanted to all the rest of the year, but you had to do that. And the Christians were very quick to say, no, 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 this is the king of everything who has conquered death. I'm not going to say Caesar is Lord. And what is really interesting is that's what led to so much persecution is the belief that Jesus was king and Caesar was not. And so as you can imagine, as we even now begin to say, ah, no, I'm going to obey God rather than men when it comes to this issue, it creates problems. Brothers and sisters, even now we have faithful saints who are suffering because they will refuse to say lies about who is the king of the universe. There are brothers and sisters in North Korea right now who will not acknowledge this near deity-like status of Kim Jong-un. Brothers and sisters, even within our own country, there are those who refuse to to stop worshiping as they've been commanded to and are facing all kinds of trouble as a result. Even now in China, in Hong Kong, brothers and sisters that I know myself are suffering for the sake of proclaiming the gospel and gathering with the saints against all else because they will say, Jesus Christ has already beaten death, he is king, and no one else is above him. Anyway, as we've said, the gospel results in the destruction of death and tyranny. Uh, Skipping down a little bit, because I do realize we are limited on time, And the last part of verse 45, Paul says this. He says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. That last Adam is a reference to Jesus, just to be clear. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have become, have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Are we following this? What he's saying it's like, just in the way that Jesus was raised, so will you. Just in the way that Jesus was made perfect, so will you. Because you will bear the image of Christ. The Verse 50 says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. A little side note, pause. He's referencing the fact that Christ, having already beaten death, right, has a consummation in the raising of his saints that is still to come. The fulfillment, the full fulfillment, as we would say, of this prophecy. And then he says, death has swallowed, has been swallowed up in victory. Then in verse 55, he turns to actually taunt death itself. And he says, Where old death is your victory? Where old death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Keeping in mind... This is Paul who has said, Jesus really did raise from the dead. He really did conquer death. He really did die for your sins. And you really have the hope that he has shown us in his first fruits of resurrection. This good news then allows for an ultimate elimination of the sting of death. And so in verse 58, he says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul is writing to what is arguably a discouraged Corinthian church, plagued with false teaching and sin. And they're struggling Some of them might be dying. There are faithful ones that are probably facing persecution. Those who have believed are probably facing some ostracization because now they won't worship in the pagan ways that their family does. And he is saying, brothers and sisters, because Christ rose from the dead, stand firm, let nothing move you. Give yourself fully to the work and the labor that God has set before you, knowing that it is not in vain because this Christ has risen from the dead and he is defeating all enemies, including death itself. And so, brothers and sisters, if Paul were writing this letter to us, and I would argue to some extent he has, and what what would he want to say to us as faithful believers in the 21st century when as, as Kathleen brought up early, we have more suffering with our, for our brothers and sisters in, in the faith. There is, there is more oppression. Even within our own culture, there's more of a resistance. And Paul would say, brothers and sisters, he beat death. And our king who has beaten death means nothing should move us. Stand firm, keep proclaiming the gospel. And so as we go on our way today... Um, I'm going to admonish that we faithfully proclaim the gospel. Wherever you go, if you see family today, find a way to sneak the gospel in. Um, in your workplace, find ways to make sure that Jesus is proven to be your king against all others. Um, could I get um, a couple to grab the communion and begin distributing it? Um, thank you, honey. Um So, as we are finishing up here today, um, I am going to continually encourage the idea of the proclamation of the gospel, right? But with that in mind, I will also point out that when we take communion, part of what we are doing, as Scripture says, is we're acknowledging the Lord's atoning death until He comes. And so we don't take communion lightly, uh, but we do take it celebratively. We're excited because Jesus beat death, and when we get together, This is part of us remembering what he has done. And it's part of us, uh, well, worshiping him, yes. But there's no question that there is a reason why it's called communion. That there's something that happens. I'm not a transubstantiationist. I don't even think I'm a consubstantiationist. But I do believe that there's something special about communion. There's something that happens when we gather together and take communion. So I want to give us just a moment. Um, Scripture does say... Uh, that we're not to take it lightly or with sin in our heart. We have had an opportunity for confession earlier, um, but I want to give you a moment. If there is anything in your heart between you and God, now is a great time to get it clear uh, as the elements are passed. And then just in a moment, we are going to actually partake um, Does everybody have who wants to partake? All right. Thank you, sweetheart. Hmm. So we have already um, briefly mentioned the persecuted church, uh, but it gives me some joy to think about in all parts of the world today, uh, saints are gathering, Um, some of them in houses, uh, some of them even hiding away even within our own country, some cases within Canada, um, China, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Iran. uh, Brothers and sisters, in some cases, are risking death to be together. Um, I would argue in many cases are risking death, risking job loss, risking being put out from their families so that they could come together and remember that Christ triumphed over death. And so when we take communion, I want you to remember that, like, we are in Christ in the same way that those brothers and sisters are. And it does us well to remember them. But more than that, to remember what Christ has done, that he suffered and died to pay our sin debt. And he really did raise from the dead. Uh, So, Lord, I'm asking that you would bless these elements as we commune together and remember what you have done in atoning for our sin and raising from the dead. Thank you, Lord. So, in the night Jesus was to be betrayed, he took some bread and he broke it. And he says, Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he says, This is the blood of my new covenant poured out for many. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus. As we go on our way, as we celebrate what you have done, receive glory today. As we go with our families and our friends, receive glory. Lord, may nothing move us. May we faithfully proclaim the gospel. May we remember it as of first importance. And then may we see many come to repentance and faith in you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you all very much. We will see you next week.